This is Developer Stories, where we ask you why you built it, and we look behind the scenes of some of tech's passion projects and people. Welcome to the show. You're in the right place. Hey, hey there, listeners. As a reminder, you are listening to the Life Sciences Consulting special mini-series. We are in part two talking with Tyler Burns, the CEO and founder of Burns Life Sciences Consulting. Let's jump right in. Entering part two of the episode, we've just finished with Tyler's early life and learning, and now we're moving into postgraduate school. To go back to this this realization about how you learned during your PhD and the support structures that you had, how has that sense of structure and means to learn? So, you know, for example, a lab to go to, people that are in the lab to talk to that you can learn from, a way to to give mentorship. How has that changed as you've progressed from being a graduate student at an institution to kind of being on your own? It's been kind of a mixed bag. When I came out to Germany, I was working 50% time in a lab at a rheumatism research institute. I was working 50% time as a as consultant, life sciences consultant. I was freelancing at this point. I hadn't built the company yet for uh, companies basically on the West Coast. So I was doing like Zoom calls with a nine-hour time zone difference in 2017, but you know before Zoom was cool right before it was mainstream what i can tell you is right out of stanford like it was definitely a lot lonelier it's like i was going you know so i I was working at this research institute and you know my my colleagues were great you know the the pi i was working under great guy you know in in the adjacent lab i met a woman who is now my wife so it's it's like i I've had some really good experiences in terms of just like general camaraderie but then you know 2018 i quit to, to do the consulting full-time. And then it was just me and the laptop and in the Zoom screen. And even then like the Zoom screen in the Slack channel, it was like, there would be like one or two days a week where I'd be really active there. And then the rest was just kind of me by myself. And I kind of realized that at some point that, you know, and this is going to sound kind of cheesy, but that I need people that I can't just, you know, go it alone, do it on my own, whatever. Even if I'm like a super introverted person, what I basically ended up doing was was kind of testing the limits of my introversion and realizing kind of being able to kind of almost quantify how introverted I actually am, how much kind of social interaction I actually need, both from like a personal standpoint and then just from a work standpoint and being able to being able to bounce ideas off of people. You know, it's not like it, it's not like I came to that realization and then I solved the problem by doing something. I it was more, it's been more of like just kind of a continuous issue. I think what a couple of things have helped, you know, having my wife, having someone live with you and, you know, not being alone all day, every day, that definitely helped. And then the fact that, you know, she's a PhD student. So she kind of understands, yeah, I can talk science with her and she kind of understands what I'm dealing with. And I understand what she's dealing with. I think that's, that's been something that's, that's really helped me. And then the rest, you know, so I, I started a, you know, you're in this, the Life Sciences Self-Employed Collective and, you know, so like a Slack channel, yeah, I might grow it into something else, but basically for people in the Life Sciences who are somewhere between self-employed or 
working on open source projects or, you know, things like that. It, and it's all kind of friends from graduate school and like people I've met thereafter who kind of are, are, are similar to me and in a similar place. I've had to have a little bit of extra initiative to, to do these things. And I've had to really kind of put myself out there, just kind of what's, I forgot who said this, but it was, uh, you know, be the flame, not the moth. It's, it's this whole thing where if I, if there's not an, if I'm, if I'm not getting enough social interaction with friends or with people like, like-minded scientists, I can bounce ideas off of. It's like, they're not going to come to me. I have to really put myself out there and, you know, extend myself and give a lot. And then maybe they'll, they'll come to me, but only after I've taken some initiative but it's been so I've been here for now five years, five years and a couple months. And it's still kind of a struggle compared to the parallel universe where I stayed in Palo Alto, got a job at a local startup, continued visiting Stanford, contributing to the cancer bio department and going to the talks and the dinners and all of that stuff. I, I do miss that. And then like, I don't think I'm going to get that out here, but this kind of gets down to, you know, like weighing out what I want in life, you know, and like what I want, like what I want with my career, what I want with the, the, the hours outside of work and all of that. And then, you know, when you, when you kind of weigh all of that out, my position here in Berlin, Zoom calling my friends and colleagues in the United States, still being associated with the, that, the research institutes out here, that, that balances things better than I think a life in the Bay Area would. That's spot on about kind of, so to step back, I'll tell a little bit of my story. So I went remote a few years before the pandemic, and I found myself in these moments of silence where I just felt really lonely. And I realized that I was unintentionally placing the burden of responsibility for engagement on the other person. I was expecting people back at Stanford to reach out to me, to involve me. And once I had that realization and that it wasn't really their responsibility and that I needed to be loud, I needed to be the one to engage people. And I needed to do that more so because I was remote. It really flipped things for me in terms of like quality of life as a remote person. It sounds like you had that realization too. And I also kind of want to offer you this perspective that, you know, you've chosen to work from Germany for now. That's 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 your incentive. That's your choice. But there's no reason, for example, that Tyler in 10 years might change his mind and might decide, you know, hey, I'm going to go back to the Bay Area or wherever for a little bit and have that life experience that maybe I, I think could have been interesting. And then I'll go back to Germany. Like the cool thing about life is that we're allowed to like make decisions and change our mind. And, you know, probably right now, like you're good because we're in a pandemic and this whole travel thing seems like a terrible idea anyway. <laughs> <laughs> I'm totally with you on that. And then kind of to add to that, the other, the other thing is just that I'm old enough now to kind of appreciate how random life is. So it's like you're saying, I can change my mind in 10 years, move back to the United States, move back to Germany, move back to the United States, move to Hawaii, move to Tahiti, and then go back to Germany and retire there. It's like, I, so I'm, I'm sitting here, like in Berlin of all places, 
married to a local, coding, like all of these things I didn't think would have would have happened. Like I would not have guessed like this combination of, of events would have taken place if if you were to ask like the version of me that was, you know, coming into Stanford in 2011 to excitedly start my first year of the cancer biology PhD program, I wouldn't have told you that that combination of events would have happened, you know, within a decade. And so that's just to say that 10 years from now, who knows where I'm going to be. There, there was a point where I started to get a bit stubborn. I don't know if like getting the PhD did that to me or something like that, or if it's just me getting older where, where I was just like, all right, I'm, I'm in a good place and yeah, I'm going to stay here and grow my company and not do anything else. And er, I'm going to go this path and this is the way it's going to be. And I'm never moving back. And, er, you know, there's a part of me that I've kind of observed growing a little bit. That's kind of like that, but it gets kind of shut down by just kind of observing my actions over the last 10 years. And like the sheer amount of randomness that happens at first, this, this whole thought of like life is super random and you never know where you're going to be in 10 years was scary as hell. I like my little comfort zone sometimes, but at some point it's actually kind of freeing this idea that, you know, I could end up, I might be living in 10 years. I might be still here in Berlin or, you know, we might be up in Norway or we might be, in New York, or we might be back in California, or maybe I'm in Boulder, because, you know, nature and you and all that. I, I don't know. And that's kind of a cool thing. Yeah, Colorado, Boulder, amazing. <laughs> totally re- recommend. Yeah. It's funny, because I visited here once in like 2017 to give a talk. And I was like, where did this place come from? Like, I think the so I'm not big into traveling. But I think one thing that's really interesting, like about even just going to different places in the United States is that you see an environment that you just totally didn't know existed or didn't expect. And then in the same way that you said that things happen that you don't really expect, like you don't, you don't plan for it. When I visited in like 2017, I was like, wow, mountains, elevation, beautiful places to run a good combination of that. And like going to Whole Foods, I'm, I'm sold, you know, especially coming from (laughs) California, but Anyway, yeah. highly support coming to Boulder. Uh, well, we could start a little. They actually have those like working spaces around here where you can like go hang out. Uh, some of them have treadmill desks too. So we could start oh, nice. uh, like a little, I don't even know, an open source science collective or something like that. When I get older, I have this, you know, warranted that COVID is over. I have this desire to like have some kind of like open source lab. I don't know what else to call it, but it would be a place where people come every day to like work on cool stuff together. Don't know how I would pay for it. Don't know how it'd be funded, but it's just, it's my little idea. That's super cool. Okay. So I want to ask now, what is it like being a consultant? What are you working on? What's the day-to-day? Tell us about your life experience sort of now. It's a little bit more scattered. When I was doing my PhD project, especially, you know, the last nine months, it was very linear. It was like, I get out, I, I open up the laptop, uh, and I kind of continue where I was from where I was working on the other day. If I come into the lab that day, I, I kind of, you know, there's lab meeting and then I show people what I'm working on and I spend the whole day 
just thinking about what I'm doing with my project and where I'm going. It was very, very linear. And that was, there was, there was something very intoxicating about like spending that many hours on a single thing. Like that was super cool. So now it's, now I do get a little bit of that. I have my client work. So I'm not the kind of consultant that has 15 clients and like I'm getting a new one every three, three weeks or any of that. I like to see projects through. So I usually have one or two clients at a time. And so that's, that's kind of nice because I get to really, I get to go a bit more deep on each project, but you know, so that's, that's kind of one or two projects at a given time. And the problem is on top of that, well, on top of that, I have to do marketing. I have to let the world know I exist so I can get new clients. I have to kind of keep tabs on prospective interesting clients, keep in touch with my older clients because very often, you know, most of my business these days is actually kind of either refines or, or things through connections. And so like the, the best thing that I can do from the perspective of like having a stable, stable set of projects to work on is just keep in touch with everybody. So I spend a lot of time doing that, a lot more time than I've, I've ever spent. And then, then there's kind of updating the website. And that's one of those things where, you know, whenever I write a new article to the website or whatever, I'm kind of killing multiple birds with one stone. There's the kind of long-term, if I die, I want this out there kind of goal, like the existential goal. But then it's also helps me with marketing and then if I'm writing about like an open source project or something that I'm working on, that kind of helps me with a lot of things too. So it, so that like hits a lot of things at the same time. So I incorporated in 2020 and it's a GmbH. That's the German, I think it's similar to a C Corp. Like that, I think that's the equivalent in America. Point is lots and lots and lots and lots of paperwork all the time. I, luckily I outsource a lot of it, but I'm always thinking about like, you know, so for example, it's it's not like an LLC where you you just kind of you take the profits and it goes into your bank account or whatever. I had to basically hire myself as managing director for my company and sign an employment contract, all in the German language, by the way, which I'm not fluent in by any means. So that's kind of another wrinkle to this thing. So it's like I have to I have to learn German and then I have to learn German legalese, and then I have to kind of understand that enough to employ myself as the managing director for my company and then figure out what my monthly salary is going to be. And that requires me to kind of think about kind of the relative risk, like what, what what's the probability that I'm going to have a client next month? Like what's the probability that I'm going to have this amount of profit next month? That's been tested a little bit now because, you know, we're kind of, the economy is not quite what it was. So it's a, it's a bit harder to find clients these days, but but you're always kind of thinking about that. And then there's the taxes. And I'm not going to get too much into this, but but just to say kind of at a high level, you have like four boxes, right? Like a two by two matrix. And then there's on one side, there's United States, Germany. And on the other side, it's personal and corporate. And those are the different tax buckets that I have to think about. So two tax offices hitting myself and my company. And so like, it's all of these, this other stuff that kind of gets in the way of the, the, the projects that induce that flow state that I like so very, very, very much. So that's, that's kind of what it's like. It's a lot of balancing. I understand why people hire people. 
Like I understand why kind of companies turn into this thing where you have a whole bunch of employees. I outsource a lot of my stuff, mainly the contractors. And so it's like, I'm, I'm starting to do a little bit of that now, but even with all of that help, it's still kind of, it's still kind of a lot of things you, you have to keep track of. And so it's a little bit of an opportunity cost. Like I really, really like doing biological data analysis and exploring kind of novel data sets from novel technologies and like really thinking about like, you know, what is this, what does this result tell me about the biological first principles of this thing? I really like all of that. And when you run a life sciences consulting company, you get to do that sometimes, but you don't get to spend like really protracted periods of time on that. And that's been kind of an adjustment it's something that I'm fine with my decision. Like, again, there's a, there's a lot of benefits to being self-employed that, that kind of outweigh it. But that's definitely like if you're, if any of your listeners are biologists slash bioinformaticians who are working a steady job or finishing grad school or their postdoc and considering going the self-employed route, this is something you really have to think about. Like I was a freelancer prior to incorporating it, it, you know, maybe maybe one of the questions is why don't you just start an LLC or something? Get the pass through. Don't have to worry about all the bureaucracy. Well, it's kind of complicated because I'm in Germany. From a tax standpoint, it's much better, or at least it's a, it's a much lower hanging fruit to run a German company. And the problem is the German companies. Germany doesn't have a limited liability pass through income business structure. The literal equivalent of the LLC is the GmbH, which again is more like a more like a corporation because it's 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 definitely not pass-through. I'm saying all of this because when I was a freelancer, it was a little bit easier in terms of like, there is a little bit of extra bureaucracy out here. It's called VAT reporting. It's like sales tax for services. It's a thing in Europe. It's not a thing in the United States. A little bit of extra paperwork, but it wasn't that bad. I could have stayed a freelancer and and had a lot less of a bureaucratic burden and maybe have a bit more time to like work on projects and stuff like that. And that would have been pretty cool. But the problem is freelancer isn't this like, oh, that's exciting. You're off to do great things. It's, and this is probably the same thing in the United States. In many respects, having a GmbH made me get taken a bit more seriously. Now, here's the other thing about a GmbH that makes you get taken a lot more seriously out here compared to freelancer. And this is something that like Americans will not have to deal with. I don't know how it works for corporations, but for the German GmbH, again, like compare this to compare this to what it takes to start an LLC in Delaware. For a GmbH, aside from all of the paperwork, of course, in German, so I have to outsource a lot of that to like consultants. You have to put down, like you won't believe this, twenty five thousand euros. So I, I think it's about the same in U.S. dollars right now in share capital. So you have to just take twenty five thousand bucks, throw it into your business bank account. It doesn't get touched. If you get sued, you get sued all the way down to the share capital. That's basically what it is. So it's it's twenty five thousand shares at one euro per share. But the point is, you just have to have twenty five thousand euros lying around. Luckily, I did from like the years and years of doing consulting up until then in basically pretty good market. But when you're applying for housing or you're applying for a loan or anything, anything big like that out here and you say you're self-employed, but then you 
you name your company, and then you have GMBH at the end of it, they immediately think, okay, 20, he had 25,000 euros lying around in share capital. So he can be a bit more trusted than the freelancer where, you know, maybe maybe he's making a 500 bucks here and there. You don't know. But that's what it's like. You're doing a lot of things at the same time. And, you know, that's not for everyone. To be honest with you, at some point I might get burnt out and say, you know, this is too much. And then maybe I'll go back into employment. I don't know at this point. Like right now I'm fine. And I think if the market kind of reverses itself a little bit, then I'll be able to put a few more people on payroll to help me out. And then maybe I'll be able to focus a bit more on the science. But that's that's kind of what it feels like right now to kind of be me on the day to day. But let me uh, kind of give you another perspective now, literal day to day. I just told you all of the costs of it owning your own GmbH in Germany and scattered and all that, you know, I, I said all of that, but let me tell you what the benefits kind of feel like. I woke up at I think like 8.15 or 8.30 this morning. It was the dog that woke me up. She's basically my alarm clock, two-year-old yellow Labrador retriever named Ruby. And so, you know, mostly out of bed, 8.30, took the dog for a walk casually, had my breakfast kind of at a relaxed pace, went to the gym, did my leg workout, came back. That was like a two hour ordeal. You know, there wasn't, and there wasn't any like rushing to like, get as many sets in by this time. Cause then I got to go do this thing. I just kind of took my time and then I came back and I started actually, you know, so I had my lunch when I came back, I started actually working around 1 PM or so. And I worked until around like eight or nine. And it was pretty much like today was, was a pretty, you know, I guess you would call it like a deep work session. It was, it was pretty intense. It was flow state, full on coding, a lot of fun, but it's like, I just kind of started it at one, not because I planned to start at one five days ago, because that's my shift. I just, I, you know, it, it was time to start and here we go. And then I, I coded until I, I didn't want to anymore, which was around you know, eight or nine, checked off a couple of other to-dos, like a little bit of, there's always some bureaucracy you got to do out here. That was my day. And that's kind of how my day is. It's like, I do work a lot. You know, I do put in a lot of hours, but like, I basically, I go by my own cycles. If I'm feeling highly energetic that day, maybe I'll work until late in the night. If I'm feeling kind of tired and distracted, then maybe I won't work all that much. Or maybe Instead of doing like deep work, I'll just kind of get off a bunch of shallow two dudes. That's what freedom feels like. Spend a little bit longer at the gym or relax a little bit. Now, that being said, it takes a little bit of discipline because obviously you can get in the habit of like, oh, maybe I can just watch an episode of Netflix or something like that, which I don't do. Like I'm experiencing like amounts of freedom that are just crazy day to day, which is just fantastic. And on one side of the coin, like it's fantastic. But on the other side of the coin, if I was a little bit less disciplined, this wouldn't work. That's kind of the literal day to day, like from the moment I get up to the moment I go to bed, that's kind of what it looks like. I don't know if that's how it is for you, 
Yeah. So that resonates with me a lot, especially this idea of freedom. And I think as we get older, we place more emphasis on the importance of having that temporal freedom, not just for our ability to like think and work, but also just for our ability to relax and realize that life isn't just always about working. Life is about living your life and you're passionate about your work. So you do some of that too. I'm not a consultant, but I prioritize, for example, my sleep always in a day. I'll say, oh, you know, I was just really focused for a couple hours, but I feel like going for a run now. So I'm going to go. I never work when I don't feel like working. Whenever I'm working, I'm because I want to be working and I choose to be working. And I, I most definitely do not stick to traditional, like these are my shift hours. It's sort of like when I start working is when I start. And when I finish is when I finish. I think that's definitely something that you probably get more of if you are self-employed. But I also think there are jobs that you can choose that will vary in degree to which you can have that temporal freedom. I think the scariest thing for me is when I see like someone's schedule at a tech company and it's just totally booked with like 15 and 30 minute meetings from nine to five. Like that would just be pure hell for me. (laughs) Yeah, I I totally agree. And yeah, that's something, uh, you know, with respect to like, potential employment structures that are that would also afford me the flexibility and freedom that I have now. That's something I've thought about just because, you know, if the recession gets really bad, then from an anti-fragile standpoint, it might be advantageous for me to like get a 50% employment position, like kind of go a step back to where I was, where it was like 50% employment, 50% running the company, or even like 100% employment, park the company for a little bit, and then like switch back to running the company, you know, half or full time when the next bull run happens. And so that's something it's like, I'm, I'm a bit more open to it now. And another kind of point that I wanted to bring up that, that kind of is similar to this is your listeners should know that when you start a company, you get kind of sucked into this. It's a really toxic mindset. Like a friend of mine actually and I guess I'll preface this by saying a, a good friend of mine who ran a SaaS company for several years basically said that like, if you're going to go into self-employment or if you're going to run a company, you should have a therapist, even if you don't think you need one. And it, it took me a while to kind of internalize what he said, because what happens is you have your quarterly goals and you're always looking at how much profit you're making and You could definitely make more profit. And then, you know, if you do this one thing, maybe you'll, maybe if you work a few more hours and you make a few more sales calls, maybe you can even 10X what you're doing now and then 100X next year. You know, you're always thinking in terms of like, I'm going to be rich soon. And and here's where it gets really bad. It's like, it's, it's perfectly fine to say, okay, you know, maybe I'll get more profit if I do this thing. You know, that's, that's kind of cool. It's kind of like debugging code where it's like, okay, what, things can I tweak to make it easier for money to come in? Like that's kind of a, that's a fun thing. But what's really bad is this idea of I'm going to have this many bajillion dollars in five years or whatever else. Okay. That's, that's a kind of the mindset that a lot of people get myself included, like, Oh, I'm going to get to there, but here's the bad part. There's this kind of unspoken. And then I will finally be satisfied and be able to relax. That's always implicit in this. I'm going to be rich mindset. I'm going to make more. I'm going to make more next quarter. I'm going to make this much in two years. I'm going to make this much in five years. 
all of these, you get just bombarded left and right with goals. And with each goal is, again, this embedded assumption that if I achieve this goal, then I will be happy. Like setting a goal is almost like saying, I'm going to not be happy until this future point. So like making a sacrifice is the same thing. Like I'm going to sacrifice some happiness so I can get a payoff later. But there's this embedded assumption that, at least when I think about this, that like if I'm making a sacrifice for a payoff later, that there's no way that I can be happy now. Don't even bother. Just focus on doing all of the things so you can be happy later. But it's when I am happiest is when I'm process driven. Like the thing I've done consistently the longest is actually fitness. So I've been lifting weights since I was, you know, starting out in high school. So February 22nd, 1999, and I've recorded everything. And, you know, again, I, I record everything. You know, I, I told you I have that big journal. I've recorded all my workouts since 1999. And I think one of the things that has helped me be so consistent was I never really had like steadfast goals that I was bound to. I always kind of had this idea of like, oh, it would be really nice to bench press this much and, you know, to be able to deadlift this much. But it wasn't like I'm working out for the sole purpose of being able to bench press this much or to run this race or whatever else. It was all about the process. Like I got my dopamine from the act of going to the gym and like, you know, doing these exercises and and that kind of thing. And it took me a while to realize that that's the way I should be treating my company. It's like, I can say, okay, you know, it it would be nice if I could, you know, get this much profit and, you know, do this thing. And then if I have this much capital, then I can get another employee. And then, you know, I can, we can do this bigger project and have a bigger impact. Like that's fine. But I think what I'm trying to do now is to kind of set these goals as as kind of things that help me orient and then almost forget them like basically set the goal and then kind of we were talking about decomposition of problems into actionable pieces right being able to kind of decompose the goal into like steps into like a protocol oftentimes it's just like processes it's you know atomic habits if you've if you've heard of that read that book by James Clear but the point is it's like from a psychological perspective, if I do that, and then I just kind of have these habits that I'm kind of doing for their own sake, then I am so much happier that it's it's very hard for me to convey like how much better that is and how much better that can make your life than if you get kind of stuck in the trap of like, I need to be this wealthy before I am happy. I mean, it's like night and day. And maybe your listeners at home will be listening to this and say, oh yeah, yeah, I'm not going to do that. Don't, it's all good. I'm going to, I'm going to, going to read Atomic Habits by James Clear and I'm going to be process-based and all of this stuff. But when you get into it, like when you are in the trenches as the CEO of a company, it's like everything is pulling you toward these kind of more toxic mindsets. And it's like, I haven't seen the half of it because, you know, I don't have, I don't have VC funding, like I'm all self-funded. Like I don't, I'm not in debt to anyone. Like I'm not trying to 10X someone's investments. What I've learned about myself at least is that that would be very difficult for me psychologically to handle. I'm definitely taking my friend's advice seriously that like going into self-employment 
and wanting to run a company at some point, you should just like have a therapist for preventative measures. That makes sense. Now that I've experienced what I have experienced. What you described earlier also is something that I've seen in people about kind of living in the future. So you always place your happiness on some future expectation of something, but you never really pause to kind of realize that in the moment with what you have right then, you are happy. It's always like a future project or a thing. And I'm not going to like name people, but I know people that are old, older, older than me, much older than me, who still have this mindset or are missing this insight. What they have is enough. And always placing your happiness on this future thing is, well, generally it leads to kind of unhappiness, I suppose. So we do this thing on the podcast called Why Did You Build It? And, you know, understandably, you can't share a lot of your NDA stuff and that kind of thing. But could you talk about maybe an open source project or something that has trickled down to have like a clinical effect that others can see? Pick one thing, which will be hard. (laughs) Pick one thing. Tell us what did you build? Why did you build it? And who did you build it for? Nonlinear dimension reduction algorithms. These are things that turn high dimensional data sets. So lots and lots and lots of columns on the Excel sheet into maps. So you can understand what's there. So if I took your blood and then I ran it through, say, single cell sequencing or CYTOF, which is the technology I was working on. And then I took that data set and I ran a dimension reduction on it and visualized it, it would be like a map that had really nice islands that would correspond to different immune cell subsets in your blood, T cells and B cells and monocytes and what have you, all nicely laid out as islands. You get to see the whole forest. Really cool. And the problem is, you know, and I wrote an article about this on my website called The Truth the Beauty is Truth Delusion. You know, I saw the first one before I knew how to code. And before I was really kind of rigorously trained in bioinformatics. And I remember just making lots and lots of assumptions about how exact the maps were because they looked so good that they must be true all the way down. At some point, I decided to like interrogate that. I mean, the whole story is I was sitting, like my, my colleague was giving a talk. I was sitting in the audience he presented one of these maps that I had done because I was the bioinformatician and one of the professors in the audience just wasn't buying it. And, you know, he was just very respectably like skeptical nitpicky about, about this thing. I realized when I was, you know, I, it was one of those deals where I was turning to him and talking to him directly in the audience to answer the question that he had for the speaker. And I realized that I was basically hand-waving. And so what I decided to do is actually test how just how good these dimension reduction algorithms actually were. And it turns out that I could use some of the methods that I had developed when I was working as a PhD student in my, you know, my thesis to really interrogate these tools. And so what I did was, you know, if you imagine you have the dimension reduction map and that's two dimensions, X, Y, and then you have the high dimensional space. So it's like maybe 40 features or something along these lines, like 40 columns on the Excel sheet, 40 dimensions. You can't visualize that, so you have to smash them into two dimensions. But you can imagine there's a two-dimensional point cloud and then a 40-dimensional point cloud. And let's say I have a cell and I take its k-nearest neighbors in the original 40-dimensional point cloud 
And then I take that same cell and I take its K nearest neighbors in the two-dimensional point cloud, the map that we think is so like exact. And we ask the question, how do these nearest neighbors overlap? Like, are they the same nearest neighbors? Are they totally different? Is there like a 90% overlap, an 80% overlap? Maybe it's not that good and it's actually only a 70% overlap. And so it was a very, very basic question. And I did this, you know, one night. And what I found was actually, it was, you know, for a 10,000 cell data set with a K of 100, it was like 25% overlap. Like that's really bad. The best way to think of it is as follows. These maps are as good as, like, let's say you're looking at a map of Hawaii. So if you're looking at a map of Hawaii, you know, if you're looking at Oahu, you know where Waikiki is, you know where the North Shore is, you know where downtown Honolulu is, you know where Diamond Head is. But it turns out that these dimension reduction maps would only be able to tell you that the islands, that each of the islands exists, right? Big Island, Maui, Oahu. And then on the islands, you would be able to know that on Oahu, there exists the North Shore and Diamond Head in Waikiki, but you wouldn't have any idea where they were. That's what I found out. This was a really big deal. This gets you to who. Okay, so I gave you the what. The who, well, it's, it's the bioinformaticians. Most of the bioinformaticians who were working on dimension reduction kind of had an idea that it wasn't that, you know, it was great, but it wasn't magic. But the biologists who are using these tools who don't know a thing about how they work, that's primarily my audience. Because the Cytoff community, the people who use these things, they're very, very visual. What I did for them to show them how good these maps are is I took a map and I colored each cell by its own performance. So I colored each cell by the K nearest neighbor overlap to that cell in the original high dimensional space. So if it was like, you know, so the cell would now have a number like, you know, 0 0.2, 0 0.3, 0 0.35, 0 0.37, like the percent overlap for that cell's K nearest neighbors. And so then you have a map colored by its own performance that I can put in front of the biologist and say, look, yes, these maps are good at the island level, but here's what you get cell by cell by cell by cell. I have a talk. I actually uploaded the slides as PDFs on my website. I've given the talk many times. And even like, so I gave this talk for the first time in 2018. It's 2022. People have studied dimension reduction. There's been plenty of papers, but still I have this unique angle that hasn't quite become mainstream. I still get, you know, a lot of interest when I give this talk. And unfortunately, I run a company, I don't have time to turn this into a paper. In terms of my bioinformatics work, that's like, you know, public and open source. I think this is one of the much more important things that I've done. And so that's who, and then, and then why, well, I've, I've already basically said it. It's a couple of things. One, it's getting people to kind of question their assumptions around some of these bioinformatic tools. Because the, the problem is, I think you're more optimized, or let me put it a different way. If a bioinformatic tool produces a beautiful visualization that is misleading, it's still going to get more attention, I think, than a bioinformatic tool that produces an ugly visualization that is nonetheless more true. And, and so this is what I write about in The Beauty is Truth Delusion. It's this danger that 
a lot, a lot of these visualizations look so good that they have to be full of truth, or at least they have to, or at least they create more room to make false assumptions based on their aesthetics. And so I'm showing biologists that this uh, beauty is truth delusion is a thing, especially when it comes to things like dimension reduction maps. And then I'm showing the bioinformaticians how to explain this to the biologists. That's, that's another thing, because you can't put this into words. You have to show them a picture. Like a, a picture is much, much better. You know, a picture is worth a thousand words, that whole thing. But that's how you do it. That's why I did it. Gotcha. And, you know, I would encourage you to just do that talk one more time and record it and put it online and make sure that you are loud about it so lots of people see it. Because even if you never publish a paper and you never give that talk at some kind of venue again, you will have that recording that you can promote and really get that point out there because it's totally spot on. You know, we're visual creatures. We tend to see something and we believe it and it's hard to question it. And it's really cool what you described because you essentially added a visual marker of confidence of how much we believe this to actually be the truth of this nearest neighbor. And it's super cool. But, you know, again, people won't know unless you tell them. So I encourage you to put that talk online and be loud about it. Yeah, I've yet to go that route, but I'm going to take that very seriously and see if I can get the next one recorded. So we are really coming up on time. Listeners, this is the longest episode recording that we have ever had. Uh, So I want to kind of start closing up. I'll just ask one more question. So We've talked about your background and your advice for consulting and some of your work. What do you like to do when you're not working? What's it like in Germany? What are you doing in your free time? Well, let's see. So again, I'm really into fitness. So I go to the gym every day. When when the lockdown set, I was doing a lot of home workouts, but it's mainly strength training. It's mainly like weightlifting, you know, things like squats and deadlifts and bench press. I like lifting heavy weights. It, it feels good. And then I can look and say, oh, look what I did. Yeah, you know, I do martial arts kind of on and off. It's like more of a dabbling thing. It's since coming out here, I've done a little bit, like I did a little bit of Krav Maga. I'm trying to get back into Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. That was something that it's, it's something that I was doing before grad school. And Stanford didn't really have much of that, but they did have a little bit of Muay Thai. And so I, I did a little bit of Muay Thai, you know, toward the end of grad school. And that was a lot of fun. So it's always something, it's it's like the one thing where I start it and then life gets a little bit stressful. And then it's like the one thing that gets kind of pushed out, right? Prior to coming to Berlin, I did quite a bit of Latin dance, actually, like salsa, but like onto New York style, for, for if any of the listeners are salsa dancers, and a little bit of bachata. That was like the majority of my 20s was actually quite a bit of social dance. That was kind of my thing. And then aside from that, I, I'm really, I like the outdoors. I you know, so I've got my dog and she's got a ton of energy, like way more than we ever thought. I, I take her for long walks. There's a lot of parks. There's a huge forest within city limits. It's it's like enormous. I mean, so so we go out there sometimes or I just kind of walk around the neighborhood. I've got a built-in group of friends out here that I actually met 15 years ago now, I think, when I studied abroad out here. I studied abroad out here for, for a few months in undergrad. I met these guys. It's like... I told them I was coming back. They're still here, you know? So so I've got this built-in group of friends where we actually go way back. We've got a big group chat and they're always, you know, saying, okay, we're gonna, we're gonna be here Friday at six, you know, come on up. So that's been really, really helpful. Like having this big group of friends. And then obviously just like hanging out with my wife. But before 
before we got the dog and before the, the pandemic, we would travel a lot, you know? So, so the thing about Europe is like you drive three hours and the language changes, you know, that's, that's something that's very, very different than, than the United States for sure. So we were going all over the place. One of the coolest places I think was Iceland. I finally got to see the Northern Lights, which is something that had been on my checklist for a really, really, really long time. But we don't, we don't really travel as much anymore. When we do, we'll throw the dog in the backseat and drive up to Denmark. That's kind of the place that my wife and her family like to go. It's, it's pretty close to here. It's like you drive, it's like six or seven hours and you're, you're on the Danish coast, which is pretty cool. That's kind of what my life looks like outside of work. In the, in the first lockdown, I, I got really back into reading, like fiction. The humanities in school was kind of this annoying thing that got in the way because I had to write this five-page paper and I really should be doing my chemistry homework. But but now it's just, it's actually revisiting a lot of these these books and getting into some of the ones that, that I wasn't reading in, in college, like Dostoevsky uh, novels, like amazing. You almost have to have a little bit of life experience before you can really appreciate some of these books. You know, the dog doesn't really like it when I read because I'm not paying attention to her. And so what started off as a lot of reading is now kind of a little bit of reading and then a lot of kind of listening to audiobooks and listening to podcasts while I'm walking the dog. The theme that unites a lot of these things is it's all kind of relaxed stuff. Like it's all kind of like low key at my own pace when I want. It's, it's that kind of thing as opposed to like, you know, a super competitive dance or something like that, where it's like, oh my goodness, I have to prepare for this big thing that's going to happen. I, I only have so much energy and there's only so many hours in a day. Might as well enjoy them. Amen. And the Northern Lights sound amazing. And your perspective is is really helpful to hear. So Tyler, it has been so much fun catching up. We've talked about like, not just like stuff that's happened, but just how we've grown as people actually more so you, but I sort of added in little bits of my story too. And it's just been really fun. I'm looking forward to just engaging more with this life sciences community. I'm kind of hoping that if the pandemic ever ends, we can do more in-person things and build more community that way. And I'm yeah, yeah sure. wishing the best for your company. And of course, it's good not to have these kind of toxic thoughts about how much monies will I make, but I, I wish you the ultimate success. <laughs> hey, like, likewise, likewise. And thanks for having me on. I really appreciate it. It's always fantastic talking to you. Let's do this again sometime. Yeah, definitely. And it's totally been my pleasure.